Hello and welcome to the latest edition of the FTD Advisor podcast. This week, we are discussing the outlook for income investors after the pandemic. I'm David Thorpe, Special Projects Editor at FT Advisor. Exceptionally low interest rates, a high level of economic uncertainty, and what might look like elevated valuations across multiple asset classes, combined with the continued uncertainty of the pandemic to make this a tricky time for all investors, but particularly for those with an income focus. Joining me today to discuss the topic are James Harris, Global Equity Income Fund Manager at Troy Asset Management, and David Lewis, Fund Manager within the Merlin team at Jupiter Asset Management. Thank you both for joining me today. David, what impact are rising government bond yields likely to have on income portfolios over the coming year or so? I know that you guys at Merlin it's a, it's a multi um, multi asset multi manager strategy, so you can think about it um, across asset class. And how do you unpack it all right now? Yeah, so the rise in bond yields that we've seen so far um, has obviously had a majorly well detrimental impact on sovereign bond yields, particularly those of of longer duration. Uh, certainly, particularly to the, their capital values. Um, other bonds, particularly in the high yield space, have have coped a bit better with the volatility. Um, um, and so, looking out the next year, I mean, it really depends on where we go from here. Whether whether bond yields do continue to rise, um, or or uh, on the flip side, fall for for whatever reason. So, and then looking at the equity space. The fact that uh, b- the government bond yields has risen, that's clearly increased the, the discount rate that um, people discount the, the cash flows from those equities uh, back to today, um, which has had an impact particularly on some of the more growth areas of the, of the equity world, more specifically. Um, but so it's looking, looking out from here, um, we're taking quite a balanced view. We don't, in the Jupiter Maryland team, we don't uh, necessarily believe that bond yields are going to shoot up from here, uh, and so are uh, are continuing to hold bond funds, including those that have a, a more more defensive outlook. But we're also balancing that against uh, an overweight position to equities. We believe that uh, the fact that that government bond yields have risen is telling something good about the global economy. It's saying that growth is going to be picking up. And I'm, I'm sure most most believe even as we move out of, of lockdowns down certainly in the developed world. Uh, and therefore, uh, we're quite positive, particularly on the out- outlook for equities is uh, and as byproduct, um, the e- equity income. Also, by, by, by dint of that, the fact that a lot of equity income generating areas can be in, in the more cyclical areas. And we've certainly turned more positive on those, those type of areas in November of last year when the, the vaccines, uh, vaccine news came out. And obviously, the successful rollout that we've seen, particularly in the likes of the, the UK uh, and the US. So we think that it's, a, it's a, a reasonable environment for income investors but would be biasing, as I say, our portfolios to more of the equity income side of things rather than trying to reach for yield within the, the fixed interest space because we do want to retain a degree of balance across our portfolios. Thank you. And uh, James, as the, uh, as the equity guy in, in the room, um, how, what, what does it, it mean for, for you when, when bond yields rise? I know that the Troy, uh, as, as a business, tends to have a, a lot of focus on what are often called quality equities, which some even call bond proxies, um, if they're in a bad mood. But what what does that mean for uh, what does that mean for 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 how you do things? 
Well, um, first of all, thank you very much for having me on today. Um, I find myself agreeing with a lot of what David said, actually, funnily enough, uh, in a sense that <clears throat> I slightly reject the premise of the question because I'm not convinced yields are going up an awful lot. Um, we have already seen quite a big move in, in government bond yields, almost no move at all in spreads, of course, but that's a whole separate issue. But if anything, to my mind, the structural factors which have kept bond yields low for so long have strengthened, if anything. So although I completely accept that we've got a recovery from COVID, we've got a bump as a result of people pent up demand, uh, and we might have some scarring on the supply side in the economy as a result of COVID, which is going to lead to an increase in the short term in inflation rates. I'm not at all convinced that that will lead to longer term inflation. I see that as more of a short term bump, and it may well then uh, uh, dissipate. Uh, and further credence to that could be lent by the fact that if you look at the US five year, five year, right, the five year interest rate in five years' time, it's pretty much hit its head on 2.5%, which is where the Fed thinks long-term interest rates are likely to uh, peak, and it's backed off that level. We're now at 2.37, and that's happened repeatedly in a number of these kind of inflation scares, if you like, um, over time. So I'm not convinced that, that yields are going to go up an awful lot. I also, by the way, they can't. We simply can't afford it. So I don't think that yields can go up a great deal because of the levels of debt that we're seeing, uh, which have exploded to the upside. Uh, it doesn't mean necessarily inflation doesn't rise, though. So we could either have an environment where uh, inflation dissipates, yields ameliorate, if you like, begin to fall again. Um, and I think a quality income portfolio such as what we've got would be a sensible place to be. Or it might be that inflation continues to rise, but that rates themselves can't rise, in which case we get a very negative real interest rate environment. In which case, I think a, 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 a portfolio of equities which have um, sustainable competitive advantages, giving them pricing power, uh, akin to a index-linked bond, actually looks really well placed. So I think either way uh, that uh, a quality income portfolio, to echo what David was saying, is actually not a place, bad place to be right now. I'd make a third point as well, though, which is we've had an amazing time in markets, not just over the last year, but over the last couple of decades, well, really since about 1981. But before 1981, before that, we had about 14 years where you didn't get any money at all. In 1981, markets were primed to deliver fantastic returns, whereas today, but as you said, they are pretty fully valued, and arguably, therefore, the next decade is going to be far less lucrative than the last decade. In that kind of environment, it seems to me it makes an awful lot of sense to take some of those gains, which may have been borrowed from the future, if you like, and secure yourself a very a, a long-term quality income stream, which will both be a great resource for investors, but also a really important contributor to a return where overall returns might be quite low. So I'm not convinced yields are going up. I don't think they can go up very much, um, but I think uh, from where we are today, given valuations, guess what, I would say this, but a quality equity income portfolio is, is probably a sensible place to be allocating capital. Thank you. David, and if we do get this environment of higher inflation, whatever that means for, for interest rates, whatever that means for years, if we get the higher inflation piece, what would that mean for for investors uh, with an income mandate and for uh, income portfolios? So the higher inflation obviously depends what, what higher means, um, whether we're going back to higher in terms of the last, let's say 15 years, 15 years ago of sort of 5% or whether we're talking higher in terms of in the teens um, of more like sort of 30 years ago, let's say. Um, but let's say we're talking more in the, in the former and the, than the latter, um, or generally, I suppose, if, if higher inflation anyway. Is a challenge for, for, uh, for um, 
income investors, um, given the fact that obviously fixed income securities have really formed a cornerstone of uh, income investors' portfolios, it's, and for good reason, because they have provided that uh, lower risk end of the portfolio or with, uh, with good yield that can, that can be paid out obviously regularly uh, and can be balanced against the, the equities uh, or higher risk areas of, of the portfolio. Uh, also, I suppose, going back to first principles, a lot of income investors tend to be older. They tend to be uh, more cautious or historically be more cautious than, than younger people. And therefore, they tend to have a higher weighting in uh, cautious assets in their portfolios, meaning bonds, essentially. Um, and higher inflation, of course, is going to make um, life pretty difficult for, for those fixed interest assets. So I, th I think that um, if we do see higher inflation, we certainly in the Jupiter Maryland team um, are big believers in, in staying flexible. So we, we we believe in active investors across uh, and believe invest invest them across our portfolios, and particularly in the fixed interest space, we like investing in those who um, have flexibility in what they can do. So they tend to sit in the strategic bond uh, or dynamic area sectors, so they can move to where they see the best opportunities on a global basis. Because if you do get stuck in assets um, that and inflation is is just rising in that in that jurisdiction, that is going to really eat into your income stream or, or and certainly capital values going forward. That's great, David. Thank you. Um, James, um, as, a, as the equity income manager, how do you uh, think about um, what, what would happen if inflation rose? As I sort of touched on in the earlier um, uh, point, uh, Troy are known for a particular investment style, and it might be argued by many that that's an investment style that does best when inflation's lower, bond yields are lower, etc. If we do have this turnaround, what would that mean for for your uh, fund and for the market generally? So I think it's, you have to make a distinguish, distinguish between the short term and the longer term. I think people make a, a, an error when they see high quality businesses, such as consumer staples, a good example, as so-called bond proxies. And in the short term, they can be correlated with bond yields. But in the longer term, they, because of their inherent competitive advantages, brands, distribution, and so on, they've historically been able to price and therefore, longer term, they are much more like an index-linked bond than a nominal bond. Uh, and as I went, was, was, was mentioning before, if we do see significantly higher inflation, I don't think that actually means we have to have much higher bond yields. In fact, we can't afford much higher bond yields. And so I think the authorities would have to come in and cap rates in some form of yield curve control. In that sort of environment, we get very negative real interest rates. And it's an environment where something like an index-linked bond or indeed a high-quality equity, which has sustainable competitive advantages, does very well. A portfolio like ours looks very good value relative to, to a linker. So I think what we would say is that, I suppose I'm reminded that in the early 70s, Warren Buffett wrote a very famous paper called How Inflation Swindles the Equity Investor. And he laid out the fact that in an inflationary environment, you want, capital, you want businesses that are not too capitally intensive because as they uh, um, raise prices, capital-intensive businesses also have to uh, invest further capital. Our portfolios tend to be characterized by businesses which don't have a great deal of cyclicality and they don't have a great deal of capital intensity either. And therefore, but they do have sustainable competitive advantages as indicated by having high returns on capital. And therefore they have the pricing power and the capital resources to be able to entrench their competitive advantages and to increase prices should, be, should, should that be needed um, to offset the effects of inflation. So I guess the best way to approach a period of higher inflation is to make sure that your businesses are of sufficient quality to be able to cope with it. Thank you. David, the Merlin team are well, well established and, and well known for, 
for having been around for for 10 years and, and maybe one or two more than that as well um how have you observed i suppose the the decade that's just been and um, what lessons have you taken from that that you can take into the the decade ahead it's a really good question because I think that the last decade really has been a remarkable one. And so the first lesson I would have said is that no matter how on how certain the macro environment seems to be, it might not happen because everyone has been talking about inflation happening for well over a decade now from the end of the financial crisis. Uh, and to date, it hasn't happened. And so I think that uh, that has to be taken into account. Um, and particularly with the emphasis for income investors, thinking about that last point, is you've really the focus on being diversified, given the uncertainty out there, uh, and also f- focusing very much on on cap- your capital base, as well as the income generation capabilities of your portfolio. Because the last thing you really want to do is fill your, fill your portfolio with or max out your current yield um, and only result in uh, a dwindling capital base because that mean reduces your potential to g- generate income in the future. So our key, uh, key takeaways really are have an open mind when investing for income. Uh, be willing to invest in things that don't necessarily produce an income if they help your portfolio or you're able to produce capital capital growth from them. And then also, if you are in a world of of low rates, as we can as potentially continue to be, as James has been talking about, then consider using um, capital drawdown as a way of trying to boost your income if you require it, rather than only simply requiring the headline income yield to provide for for your needs. Thank you, James. It was a, a decade in uh, equity markets where, as David mentioned, um, there were a number of things that were supposed to happen that never quite did. Inflation didn't didn't quite come through. There wasn't really a prolonged sh- shift from growth to value, um, despite the many millions of predictions I, I, I had of, of, of that taking place. And with the recession, there wasn't a significant ticking growth. It, it all just sort of muddled along. Again, that was probably quite a, a nice environment uh, for a firm like Troy with, with the investment style that, that you're known for. But from that decade, what can we take into the, into the decade ahead? Well, it's, an, it's a very interesting question. And it's always dangerous to in investments to see what's happened in the past and extrapolate it forward. In fact, that could lead you to the diametrically wrong conclusion. You know, one of the iron laws of investment, if you like, is that low valuations lead to high returns and high valuations lead to low returns. And so because we've had a decade of really high returns, it probably means the next decade will be a decade of much lower returns. So I guess that's where we should we should frame it, um, which is why I was talking about um, maybe the, the important incremental return you're likely to get from income. I mean, from my perspective, the biggest lesson of the last decade is a real reiteration or confirmation of the absolute centrality of technological disruption, which we're seeing in the global economy. It is absolutely incredible what's going on. And any investment that you make in any portfolio that you're managing and any way in which you're allocating capital, you absolutely have to take into account whether or not a business uh, is is a beneficiary of that or whether it's going to suffer from that. Now, this is really relevant for income investing because clearly the most well-known, largest and we could all list them, technology companies tend not to pay an income. Uh, And it's difficult, therefore, for an income portfolio to have too much of those. But actually, that's not that inconsistent with traditional income investing, whereby you tend not to be at the absolute cutting edge. Because although the cutting edge is very exciting, it can also change quite quickly. The um, product cycle of these sorts of businesses tends to change quite quickly. So 
I think you need to take into account technology, but recognize an income fund, you're likely to be at the cutting edge, but crucially, make sure you're also not in those businesses which are being disrupted. And so we try and steer a middle path in particular businesses and sectors that we think are, as I mentioned, high quality, resilient, have, have sustainable competitive advantages, such that we can continue to generate an income and not be significantly disrupted by what's going on in, in, in the global economy. Okay, um, that's great, James. Thank you. Uh, David, um, I'm coming to you first on this one, I guess, because Merlin is a multi, multi-asset type of um, approach. But we've, we've seen over that decade that we've just been discussing, um, we've seen the rise of quite a lot of, I suppose, alternative income assets. And I know alternative is, is a very subjective term, but we've seen student property, we've seen aircraft leasing, and as recently we, we've seen um, music rights investment trusts become very popular. Um, but how, how do you think about those? Do you think those sorts of mandates have a, a longer term role in portfolios or are they simply a function of uh, bond yields are low so somebody has to has to go somewhere to, to get income? I think, I think there's scope for them to be longer term assets. Um, I think that people being willing to investigate new new options um, is, a, is a good thing. I think that the reality though when you when you are when you are considering these these areas is you have to be aware that they don't have the track record that more traditional assets have. Uh, and therefore, they are more difficult to analyze as a result because you don't you don't have that bank of information on them. So when you're looking at these things, you have to go in with a skeptic, skeptical mind, I suppose. You have to think about the trade-offs versus the opportunities that they can potentially produce and what, what exactly could go wrong. And of course, when thinking about a, in a portfolio context, size, uh, position sizing is obviously vital. So uh, so a student uh, property, as you, as you highlighted, may well be a very uh, attractive area, uh, but it, each, the more focused you become, the more specific the risks that, that arise. For example, student property might be something that is hit for, following COVID. If you find that, uh, at stu- that students want um, to potentially work remotely, given that that is now something that is possible. So I think the key is you've got to look at them all in their own, in their own merits, be very cognizant of the potential risks out there, think broadly about what could happen because of their lack, potential lack of track record. And then also, finally, you've got to be <clears throat> very aware of what structure you're investing in, because if you invest in, uh, in an asset which may have a very consistent income stream over time, uh, if that's wrapped in an, investment, in, in an investment trust, that investment trust trades more like an equity. Um, and so you've got to be aware that if you are investing that for the low low volatility returns, that might not be actually what you get. Thank you, James. As a as an equity fund manager, you can uh, presumably buy these uh, investment trusts that do alternative income. Um, but but have you done so? And and how do you think about them? Certainly, as they've grown in size, presumably there's more liquidity than there was in the past. And maybe that's less of a concern, but but how do you view them and how do they fit within the sort of process that you've got at Troy? Well, theoretically, I thank you for, for asking the question. Theoretically, we could uh, invest in some of these so-called alternative income assets. We haven't and we don't. I mean, to us, the best uh, investment is one that can grow income sustainably long into the future. And that tends to be businesses which I mentioned have a low level of capital intensity which means that they can invest in the business to entrench their competitive advantages, um, pay an income, and manage their balance sheet. So the ideal investment is one that has a high return on capital employed, a high incremental return on capital employed, 
on a long runway for growth, and that gives you predictable and sustainably growing free cash flow, which funds a growing income stream. Very few of these, I would argue, alternative income assets are characterized like that, uh, and therefore we would generally exclude them. Thank you. Um, okay, uh, chaps, uh, last question, and I suppose relatively um, brief, brief answers, please. But given the circumstances we've been discussing with uh, low low interest rates, with high debt levels around the world, with aging demographics, with the rise of technology, all of those factors, do clients simply have to accept lower, lower yields uh, on portfolios? David, I'm sure you'll be absolutely delighted that I'm going to ask you that one first. I would, I would agree. I, I think that um, investors do have to be um, cognizant. They are going to get lower return or lower, lower um, income yields in the future. And they're prob probably going to have to take higher risk, given the fact that the likes of cash yields nothing. You get very little on your sovereign bonds and even your sovereign bonds, which, who have, which have historically been in negatively correlated with equities. If we do go into an inflationary environment, they may well not be in the future. And so we think stay, staying flexible uh, and trying to avoid the, the areas of that you believe are significantly mispriced is, is the key. Thank you. James, do, do you feel that clients in your, your funds um, will have to in future, you know, maybe in the past 5% was, was a realistic thing to go into drawdown or four? Is it now three or two? The short answer is yes. Clients are going to have to take greater risk in their portfolios in order to generate a similar level of yield. I mean, one is reminded that particularly if we, given the markets are pretty fully valued, what you don't want to be doing is finding that you're not covering some or all of your day-to-day -day expenditure with income and therefore in more tough times you have to give it to your capital in an inopportune moment. So income definitely has a role to play, arguably now more than ever. But it does matter how you do it. Um, and this is where I would say this book, this is where Troy comes in because if you're taking more risk to generate your income, then you want to be doing it in a conservative fashion. And Troy is all about capital preservation and trying to generate above average returns and below average volatility. Now, although this risk and volatility are not the same thing, risk should be more thought of as the permanent loss of capital, volatility does matter. Because when you're accumulating capital, volatility is your friend because you can buy assets more cheaply. But if you are in drawdown, particularly if you have irreplaceable capital and are in need of income, and that often coincides in retirement, then volatility is your enemy. Uh, and so what you really want is a manager that is both quality focused and is seeking to generate decent returns with low volatility. And arguably, that's precisely what we're trying to do. So we recognize that clients are likely to be able to take more risk. And we, to a degree, offset that by managing their funds in a conservative manner. Thank you. OK, that's great. And uh, to all of you, to David Lewis from the Merlin team at Jupiter and to James Harris, uh, fund manager at Troy. Thank you all for joining me today and thank you all for listening. Tune in next time for another edition of the FD Advisor podcast. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.